Hello, everyone, and welcome to the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan, and as always, I'll be your host for this episode. This is part two of the Codename Venona series on this podcast, so if you haven't already, please listen to part one to learn about the buildup to the trial we're about to discuss here. Um, it's probably not going to make a lot of sense, and there's a lot of connections that need to be made in this case, so I recommend listening to part one and then listening to part two in order. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email the host directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. Finally, if you can, please support the show via Patreon. Any donation level helps, and it will help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast and a thank-you message from the host. Also, for no cost, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you are listening to. Thanks so much, and without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. So just to recap part one, in case it's been a little bit since you've listened to it, since this is kind of a complicated case, we talked about the married couple Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. They had met while attending Youth Communist Party meetings in New York in the mid-1930s. Julius Rosenberg had obtained a degree in electrical engineering and was working for the Army Signal Corps during World War II. A secret program designed to spy on communications between Soviet officials and American spies called Codename Venona intercepted several coded messages during the early 1940s. Those messages would later be used to uncover a large espionage ring that was selling secrets to the Soviets during and after World War II. The government stated the spy ring was run by Julius Rosenberg and his wife and contained Ethel's brother David and four other engineers that photographed documents ranging from missile and jet development to secrets about the atomic bombs. Now, when we finished part one, investigators were now hot on the heels of David Greenglass. And this is because a scientist named Klaus Fuchs had been caught selling secrets to the Soviets. And he, in turn, gave up his courier, who was a man who was identified as Harry Gold. And when Gold was arrested, he would then give up the name of David Greenglass. So David Greenglass, who is the Ethel Rosenberg's brother, Julius Rosenberg's brother-in-law, now know that investigators are hot on his heels. But a freak accident on February 14, 1950 may have changed their history. David's wife, Ruth, was pregnant with their second child and got too close to a gas heater in their apartment and she caught on fire. David extinguished the fire, but Ruth had suffered severe burns and required skin grafts. David had suffered second-degree burns on his hand. And this all happened while they were learning about Fuchs and Gold's arrests and had to know they would be getting talked to very soon by the FBI. One thing that I didn't touch on as much in the first part, because we just barely covered David Greenglass, is from everything I can tell, David Greenglass was extremely in love with and devoted to his wife and his family. And that's going to come into play here later on. So he is he is a guy that's going to put his family first over anything else in his life. 
and so Ruth is pregnant and she has these terrible burns and this is all happening right as they're learning that the spy ring is being exposed and they're likely going to be sought after by the feds. Now when Ruth gets out of the hospital, Julius gives the young family $5,000, which is the equivalent of roughly $60,000 today, and told them to flee to Mexico. Now I don't know if Ruth was in a condition to live on the run at this point with the skin grafts and recovering from these burns and the fact that she's pregnant. So they instead choose to take the money and flee to the Catskill Mountains and seek legal advice. The feds would catch up to him and arrest David in June of 1950, and he quickly, and this is ironically, kind of likely at the advice of his lawyer that was paid for with Julius's money, implicated Julius's involvement as the ringleader. Originally, David denied that his sister Ethel knew anything about the spy ring in an effort to save her from facing charges. But just before the trial, he gave a new statement admitting that Ethel knew about the ring and had typed up notes as part of the espionage. This was likely due to him having an immunity deal in place that would be voided if they found he wasn't being truthful. But the immunity wasn't for him, it was for his wife. If he failed to tell the truth, both him and his wife would face charges and their children would be without parents. So this is going to come up several times later on as people review this trial, is that at first, uh, during the grand jury testimony, David's going to basically say, yes, I sold secrets. Yes, Julius sold secrets, but Ethel didn't know much about it, and my wife didn't know much about it. But as the government's trying to build a case against Ethel Rosenberg, they realize they don't have a lot of evidence, and originally David said that that they had passed their secret information to the Soviets on like a corner street, so kind of that dark alley meet the Soviets, give them the information stuff. And 10 days before the trial, and this is well after the grand jury uh, testimony, he's going to change his statement to say that not only did this interaction with the Soviets take place in Julius and Ethel's apartment, that Ethel, who's a sister, was typing up notes to give to the Soviets about these documents or this information. So he went from basically it was just Julius and myself on a street corner meeting the Soviets to now implicating his sister in in possible criminal charges. This is all done because the federal government is telling him that if he doesn't cooperate and if he they find that he lied about any part of his testimony to the grand jury, then his his wife could face possible charges and again he's you know absolutely in, uh, in love with and devoted to his wife david would testify that he had passed secrets related to atomic weapons to the soviets and this would actually make the the trial difficult because these were still deemed classified documents or classified information that he was going to be talking about and this trial is being attended by members of the public, the media, uh, just basically a whole bunch of people that don't have and shouldn't have access to this information. So what the judge actually does is he calls a 10-minute recess 
sends everybody out of the room except for David and his lawyers and I think some military experts that were overseeing the trial because of this top secret information. And in 10 minutes, they come up with this plan that David can testify to anything that was used during the war because any bomb that was dropped during the war was not deemed to be secret anymore. But if he saw any type of advanced prototypes or anything along those lines, he could not talk about it. And that would not violate his immunity agreement. Um, And then when the media came back in and the the public and stuff, the judge addressed the media and told them to use discretion on how they reported the specific technological information from the trial, which I find really interesting. You're basically asking the press not to report on stuff that that was top secret just 10 minutes prior. And I can't imagine there was a whole lot of people in the press that, especially now, that would sit on that information if given the opportunity. So kind of a, a interesting part of this trial. And so they're going to move forward. And scientists would later review David's testimony and say that the information that he gave the Soviets and the information that he testified to was practically worthless in regards to being useful for the advancement of a nuclear weapons program. So this is because, remember, David's not an engineer. He's a machinist. So he's responsible for maintaining the machines and equipment and that kind of stuff that's related to the nuclear weapons program. I think he drew some type of crude cross-section of one of the bombs that was dropped and then that he supposedly sold that to the scient- or the Soviets and scientists would kind of view it and just kind of basically say it really wouldn't have helped the, the Soviets at all. So afterwards, it's kind of questionable. Either David was playing dumb in the trial and whatever he gave the Soviets was a lot more damaging and he didn't want to admit to that, or he was really not in a position to gain a lot of valuable information and just kind of went along with what he could and ultimately it was deemed to not be much. Now David's lawyer made a point of telling the court how cooperative David had been and requested David get a sentence of five years to encourage others involved in espionage to cooperate with the government. The judge disagreed and gave David a sentence of 15 years, of which he served nine and a half. And I think he was, he could have faced 30 years because that's what Sobel got. And so I think the judge did factor in his cooperation when, when he ordered him to serve 15. It was only half the time that that uh, Sobel was sentenced and ultimately he's going to serve roughly two-thirds of that time and then be reunited with his wife. Now we'll bring it all full circle back to when Klaus Fuchs was arrested and the U.S. government realized they had a highly intelligent spy ring operating on behalf of the scientists. So even though I kind of went out of order there, went into David's testimony during the trial I think it was kind of important to cover every person who isn't 
on trial per se. I mean, David did, he was on trial because the immunity wasn't for him. He knew he was going to face some punishment for what he did, but he tried to cooperate as much as he could to keep his wife from getting any charges and to keep his chart or his sentence down so that he could be reunited with his wife and his family. So again, I wanted to get all of the other personnel out of the way to set up for the trial. So now we do have to go back in time a little bit. I apologize, but we're going to go back to the point of, of Klaus Fuchs' arrest again so that we can discuss kind of how the government approached the trial in general before we get into the trial. So, so again, senior government officials are going to meet on February 8th in secret, uh, February 8th, 1950, to decide how to handle the situation. At this time, Communism has been founded in China, there's a growing war in Korea, and the growing strength of the USSR, and it had just successfully done its, built its first nuclear bomb and tested it in 1949. So this is a scary period for those that felt communism was the biggest threat to America. So in just a matter of one year, again, you've got China going communist, you've got now China and Russia and you've got this little bastion of democracy that is South Korea that is under threat of invasion and will soon be invaded by the North Koreans. And you've got this red panic going on. So now you've got knowledge that you've got this large spy ring operating in the U.S. selling secrets to the Soviets. It's both a disaster for the government, but it's also an opportunity for the government to send a message. So these men that convened in early 1950 decide whatever punishment was going to be handed out needed to be a deterrent to further such activity in America. They weren't sure if they could get Julius to talk, so they wanted to have two threats in place. One would be the death penalty against him, and the other is charges including up to the death penalty against his wife. The problem was that they didn't have any evidence against Ethel Rosenberg to use as leverage against Julius. And this was even after the grand jury because they're, they did force Ethel Rosenberg to testify at the grand jury, but she just pled the fifth to everything. And nobody else would indict or I should say give information that could lead to an indictment against Ethel. So as they're approaching this trial, they're realizing they've got Julius, they've got evidence against him between the all the different co-conspirators that have that are willing to testify, David's willing to testify that that Julius recruited him and and helped him sell secrets. So they know they can they can try Julius, but they're worried that Julius isn't going to give them any more information unless they have some leverage. So they roll the dice and, and go back to David. And I, my guess is they basically tell him, if we find any evidence that your sister is involved in this, your immunity deal is off the table and your wife is potentially going to face charges as well. As we'll find out eventually, Ethel does have a small role in this. And it's possible that some of these guys knew about the evidence against them in terms of the anti-espionage activities like the Venona project. So David 
does what is the most safe thing he can and decides to play ball with the government and he changes his statement 10 days before the trial and that's where he changed it from Julius and I met the Soviets on a street corner to Julius and I met the Soviets in Julius and Ethel's apartment and Ethel was typing up notes. So now they've got a statement 10 days before the trial that will allow them to bring charges against Ethel as well, hoping that Julius will then see a chance, just like David did, to save his wife, and that Julius would in turn then give them more information. The government is going to take several attempts at Julius and Ethel prior to the trial to, to get them to give up other members of the spy ring. But this is where either they couldn't provide any more information, as in there just wasn't anybody left for them to point a finger at, or they continue to refuse to do so out of their own you know, moral compass or whatever you might want to call it. So with all the information they've acquired on August 17, 1950, Julius, Ethel, David, and a man named Antoli Yakovlev were all indicted by a grand jury. Antoli Antonievich Yatskov was born in 1913 in the Russian Empire. In 1940, he attended a school hosted by the NKVD, which was the precursor to the KGB. There, he learned English and was assigned to Sector 5, which is Foreign Operations, Section 5, the United States. In 1941, he was sent to New York to work out of the Soviet consulate under the alias Antony Yakolev. He recruited Harry Gold and served as the point man for Gold for the delivery of the classified documents photographed by the spy ring. He was rotated back to the USSR in 1946, five years before the indictment, and although the U.S. officials demanded the Soviets return Yatskev to America to stand trial, they refused and he was protected by diplomatic immunity. Yatskev would go on to serve in many high-ranking positions within the KGB Science Division and died in Moscow in 1993. With Yatskov, Barr, and Sarant all out of reach for prosecution and Gold and Fuchs already doing plea deals with the U.S. and British governments, that left David, the Rosenbergs, Pearl, and Sobel left for the government to prosecute to the fullest extent of the law. Pearl, as I mentioned before, would play many legal games using health issues and his lawyer to delay his trial until he was only found guilty of two counts of perjury in 1953 and he served his five-year sentence. And this was interesting. Again, if you look at when this trial is occurring, which is all the grand jury stuff and the, the stuff is going to be in 1950, and the trial itself is going to be the beginning of 1951. Again, this is this is the the fever pitch moment of communism and the threat of communism in the world. This is the Korean War, all the stuff I talked about before with the China turning communist, all that kind of stuff. Now, if you even just push forward a couple years. The Korean War has come to a stalemate, so we're not, as the U.S. is not actively involved in any armed conflicts with the communist country at this point. Uh, a lot of the stuff with the McCarthyism and the kind of the, the witch hunt for communists has kind of died down at this point. So by playing these 
legal games, Pearl, I think, just kind of rode out the storm to the point that by 1953, the prosecution side of things was approaching things differently, and they just wanted to be done with it. So he agrees, or, or he takes it to trial, and the government at that point had dropped it down, I think it was four counts of perjury for lying about his involvement with these other guys. And then he found guilty of two of them, and that's when he gets his two concurrent five-year sentences. So Pearl is actually, he's going to be pushed off down the road, and Sobel is going to be part of this trial. And without getting into the specifics of Sobel, he's going to be sentenced to 30 years, of which he did roughly 18. And I think a lot of that is going to be, as he's going to talk about later, is they didn't have any direct evidence that he was involved in the atomic energy stuff. And I think what they really wanted to get to was how did the Russians get atomic weapons as fast as they did? And we'll cover it later. But I think that was their main focus. So Sobel wasn't up for the death penalty, not because he cooperated, but because they didn't have evidence that he was linked to any of the atomic stuff that they believed they could trace back to David and the Rosenbergs. So Sobel, although he's on trial for the same charges, he's going to get 30 years. And now the trial's going to remain around Julius, Ethel, and David. And we already talked about David. He played the role of the main witness against his sister and brother-in-law in order to spare his wife from any charges. He's going to get that 15-year sentence of which he serves almost 10. So now we get down to just the case of the Rosenbergs. Now, the Rosenberg defense team believed there wasn't enough evidence to convict the Rosenbergs, and therefore they tried to paint the picture that Julius and Ethel were just scapegoats and the real spies had either fled the country or already pled to lesser deals. So they were playing the, yes, they had some involvement with these other people, but there's no evidence that they actually sold anything, and this was in spite David's testimony. I think they threw David under the bus saying like he was more involved and he just basically threw them under the bus to save his wife. And that in reality, they'd let all of the, the ringleaders of this off the hook, or they put the blame on guys like Sarant and Barr who had left the country claiming those were the ringleaders, the real ringleaders. And, and our guys, you know, the Ethel and, and Julius didn't do anything. So they even put the Rosenbergs on the stand in their own defense, and this this is a tactic used by defense attorneys to try to garner a lot of times support, uh, or or basically the the people can tell their side of the story. Now the flip side of it is that the prosecution then gets to cross-examine them, gets to ask them questions, but because they're the ones on trial, they can plead the fifth. They don't have to answer questions about whether or not they committed crimes or whether or not they the certain behavior of theirs was criminal in nature and so by pleading the fifth it actually in this case has the reverse effect that because the jury is made up of you know a jury of their peers and these people are living in this red menace scare going on that they saw all the evidence presented by David, and then they saw these guys on the stand not testifying, really, 
as continuing to be secretive and continuing to hide things and that's something that they thought spies would do so this actually is going to play against them because uh, they wouldn't even ask answer questions about were they members of this youth communist party because they were afraid if they answered those yes that the jury would see them as you know pro-communist and would hurt their case so instead they would plead the fifth well by doing so you're you're almost answering the question and you're doing it in a way that is suspicious especially to the jury so their defensive strategy backfired and the jury finds them guilty on day 22 of the trial on april 5th 1951 the pair was sentenced to death in accordance to the Espionage Act of 1917, which allows for the death penalty for those convicted of providing information relating to the national defense to a foreign government. The judge ruling over the case made the statement that by providing the Soviets with nuclear weapons capabilities, they had already caused the deaths of American servicemen in Korea because it gave the Soviets, Chinese, and North Koreans the confidence to invade South Korea because America now had to fear the Soviets' potential use of nuclear weapons. The U.S. government apparently had offered the Rosenbergs a chance to remove their death sentences if they provided the names of other spies and admitted their guilt. The Rosenbergs declined and stated they refused to admit guilt and would not be coerced to even under pain of death. Now, Americans were immediately divided on the sentence. So many Americans, fueled by the Red Menace, McCarthyism, and fear of the Soviets' recent success with atomic weapons, saw the Rosenbergs as traitors that put American lives in danger in both the present and the future and thought putting them to death was the best way to protect America from future acts of espionage. Others felt that the death penalty was a political move to deter people from expressing extreme left-wing or communist views, and the Rosenbergs' actions did not reach the necessary threshold for death. Several left-wing publications ran stories about the lack of evidence in the trial, mainly David Greenglass's last-minute change of statement that implicated his sister in order to spare his wife. Many felt that Ethel was either not involved at all in the espionage or barely involved and did not deserve a death sentence. Over the short couple of years between the conviction and the proposed execution, many world leaders, including the Pope, called for a presidential order of clemency for the Rosenbergs. There are several unsealed documents that show various Americans and world leaders writing letters to Eisenhower, pleading for him to remove the death penalty. There's even a copy of a letter from Ethel Rosenberg to the president asking him to grant her clemency so she could see her children grow up even from behind bars. Several appeals were filed on behalf of the Rosenbergs to overturn the conviction and or the sentence, but of the nine appeals filed, none were reviewed by the Supreme Court. Proponents for the execution would point out that the Rosenbergs received a fair trial in accordance to the law and had not been afforded any misjustice and refused at all times to cooperate with the government and to spare to, in their government's effort to spare their lives. Eisenhower's legal advisors told him there was nothing done unjustly in the process and the punishment fit the crime. Eisenhower would later write about how he had to decide between sparing the lives of these convicted spies or take a stance against the dangers of espionage. He felt if he chose to spare the Rosenbergs, he was projecting America as weak and open to further espionage that would cost more American lives in the long run. By denying clemency, he was sending a strong message to the rest of the world that America would not tolerate espionage and was not afraid to enact punishment to those who would commit acts such as this on American soil. 
Both Ethel and Julius Rosenberg were put to death by electrocution on June 19, 1953. They were laid to rest two days later in Brooklyn. 500 people attended the funeral, while another estimated 10,000 stood outside. The Rosenbergs were the only two American civilians executed for espionage during the Cold War. The case of the Rosenbergs have been hotly debated for 70 years, but with the fall of the Iron Curtain and the slow trickle of classified U.S. and Soviet-era documents in regards to the operations, a closer semblance of the truth has come to light. All of the research out there points to one fact. The Rosenbergs were, in fact, Soviet spies. Sobel admitted it in 2008, and there are plenty of unclassified Verona codes with the code names for Julius Rosenberg, David Greenglass, and all the others involved to show that there was a sophisticated and well-run spy organization during World War II. However, analysis of the documents reveal that Julius Rosenberg's involvement was mainly limited to non-nuclear military and industrial secrets, and of those on trial, only Greenglass gave the Soviets any nuclear information. As mentioned before, Julius ceased to have any access to classified information after 1945, when he was discharged from the Army, so his involvement would have been war-related, not post-war, and many believe he felt he was doing something to help the Soviets defeat Germany without understanding the long-term repercussions against America. Decoded messages prove Ethel was aware of the spy ring and may have had limited involvement, but most agree now that she did not commit espionage at a level that warranted her execution. Declassified Soviet information does show a great deal of information obtained via the spy ring in the area of jet propulsion, radar and missile technology, and other related items, but most experts believe the information provided by the spies at Los Alamos, including David, was inconsequential on in the actual development of the Soviet nuclear weapons program. In 1945, it was estimated that the Soviets could build an atomic bomb by 1950. They built and tested their first bomb in 1949. Whether or not the information they obtained from the spy ring helped advance the process by year is still debated. However, it was revealed that the scientists working on the Soviet nuclear weapons program and their leaders were very wary of any outside information and would likely have ignored most information provided to them even by the KGB. The Rosenberg children have worked tirelessly to try and clear their parents' names, especially that of their mother. They believe she was used as a pawn to try and turn Julius to give up more names, and when the gambit failed, the government doubled down and then couldn't walk away from the conviction. The Venona codes themselves have all been declassified and show that Julius Rosenberg and his Soviet handlers ran a highly successful spy ring during the 1940s in America. If those codes had been made available during the trial, it's likely that Julius's outcome would be much the same, but many others would have met his same fate. However, the codes also show that Ethel's involvement was minor at best, and the codes likely would have spared her life. That's kind of the end of the information out there in regards to this case, but I, I do have some stuff just to cover that I either couldn't get in the narrative or thought it would be better to do in free form. One thing I couldn't find, and I looked and looked and looked, is I believe in the saying, follow the money. And one thing I noted from the couple times it was mentioned in the different articles was Julius seemed to have the ability to produce large amounts of cash. I mean, 
$60,000 today or in today's money for David and $25,000 in today's money to Pearl. And this was in early 1950s and he had had a failed business in 1948. So where is he getting that cash? And so some of that flies in the face of that he's not still selling secrets after 1945 because it seems like at least the spiring, maybe it's just payments for him running the spiring in general. He's still getting large amounts of cash and people assume it's from the Soviets at this point. Now, I never saw how much people believe he was paid in total or any members of the spiring were paid in total, I guess I should say. I don't know if they have a way to to figure that out at this point. Clearly, they know about these payments because those must have come up in, you know, during uh, interrogations or testimonies or whatnot. But I don't know if they ever learned how much money the Soviets gave to the spying. However, there was an estimation that just on the nuclear side alone, and and this didn't just include the stuff from Glassman and whatnot. I think this has included the stuff from Fuchs and some others, but something to the tune of in 1950s value, something like $4 million worth of research was in, in the nuclear, just the nuclear side of things was given to the Soviets by people at Los Alamos, which I guess in today's money would be in, in the hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, worth of research and and that's just the nuclear stuff that's not the proximity fuse uh, that Julius gave them or any of the other stuff that the other engineers gave them I have to imagine if the Soviets know the value of what this information is in terms of how much research and, and money saving that allows them to do on their end there's likely a lot of money going back so when people look at this and kind of say, oh, well, he was just doing it to try to help the the Soviets beat the Nazis during World War II, I think there was more to it. And that's, to me, the proof is in those payments that he was able to give to David and to Pearl to try to help them escape. There, there's definitely There's definitely some major money transactions going on here. However, it is really hard to do to determine the actual damage done by the spiring in the long term. We talked about Sarant and Barr going on to produce weapon systems for the Soviets, and these were likely used against the U.S. in various conflicts from the time they made it to, to Moscow. I think they worked there. I mean, one of them died in the late 70s, but the other, I think, died in the 90s. We're talking about 40, 30, 40 years each of weapons development for the Soviets and again that didn't happen directly as a result of them being the spiring but the fact that they were able to flee and get to Moscow and provide that information over the next 30 to 40 years each is a result of them being spies and, and eventually being taken in by the USSR and as Sobel said in 2008 that he knows he sold technology and then that technology was known to be used against the U.S. in the Korean and Vietnam conflicts. And we have to look at how many downed pilots in Vietnam that were captured, tortured, and killed were the result of the technology stolen or produced by members of this ring. And I don't 
know if we'll ever get an answer to that. It's another one of those probably speculate all you want about it and some people are going to say it didn't at all like we can't attribute any of it any of these deaths and other people say we can contribute hundreds of deaths to it and then but then the question becomes how many deaths does it take before you feel justified that executing Julius Rosenberg sent a message that maybe did help save other lives so there's there's so much speculation and conjecture that goes into a case like this and it probably depends on which side of the argument you fall on if you are one that julius rosenberg deserved to die because he sold secrets that cost american lives then maybe it's just all it takes is one life and you can stand by and say in the grand scheme of things it had to have cost one american life and there's going to be others that can say we can't prove it at all so therefore he you know his execution was, wasn't warranted at all so again I, I think it depends on which side because you're going to view the facts very differently you're going to have different moral thresholds based on where you fall however i think the record is pretty clear that ethel got the short end of the straw on this whole deal not that i don't think she didn't know what was going on and not that I didn't think she didn't know the danger of what would happen, but I think in the grand scheme of things, her involvement was pretty minuscule and warranted a much lesser punishment. Especially when you look at, you know, she wasn't actually on site of any of these t top secret facilities photographing or, you know, getting any of this information that way. She may have been involved on the back end of, of typing some stuff up. She was trained as a secretary. And so it's possible that her husband employed her to type up some of this stuff for the Soviets. But her name wasn't, she didn't even, wasn't even given a code name in the Venona project. Like the Russians didn't have a code name for Ethel Rosenberg. So if she wasn't even important enough to the Soviets to be mentioned by code name, then her involvement was probably pretty minuscule and definitely less of an involvement than say David Greenglass or Sobel or Pearl. Uh, you know, Pearl sold jet propulsion stuff that was that likely both furthered the, the MIG development program and set back the US jet program to a certain degree. And you know, he got five years for perjury two concurrent five-year sentences so five years total served for perjury and she having not actually physically stolen any property gets the death sentence so i think that is where there's a lot of questions that are still asked if this was handled properly and i think most people agree that it wasn't in terms of how ethel was treated in this whole thing i do believe that she was seen as a a, a leverage piece with the hopes that again i think the government thought there was more to this than there was and maybe there was you know was in terms of julius rosenberg more people involved or more money involved or whatever it may be and i think they used ethel as a pawn like they did david's wife ruth and it just they ran into a different morality with with julius and ethel and we have to remember too i think david joined the youth communist party just because he looked up to julius i don't know that he had as strong of ties 
to the communist cause, whereas Julius was the president of this youth communist party and Ethel was very involved in it. And I think they had a lot of passion for what was believed by them to be a communist cause. So I think when it came down to it, they had almost that martyr type philosophy to it. I mean, they, they didn't want to die. I'm not saying that they you know, they jumped on a grenade on, on purpose here, but I think when it came down to it, it was either, as I mentioned before, either an inability for them to name anybody else or a desire not to. Now, the only thing I will say is that they were given a chance to admit guilt and they didn't. They, they, they kept saying that they didn't commit espionage, but it's pretty clear today that based on these uh, decoded cables that they were conducting espionage. So that's one of those things where I guess I lose a little bit of sympathy for them because they know they did wrong and they just wouldn't admit to it and were willing to die, as they said, to not admit guilt, whereas it's pretty clear they were guilty. Again, maybe they didn't feel like what they did arose to the level because again, Julius maybe thought he was helping the Soviets during World War II and then and that wasn't espionage. And he felt so strongly about it he would never admit that he actually committed espionage. But again, at that at this point we're just kind of making circular arguments here. So I'll move on because that's that's the end of the case of the Rosenberg spy ring and, and codename Venona. I wanted to take a, a break from covering the world of homicides and venture down the historical side of things and look at a really uh, talked about area of true crime and again that's one thing i'm always going to try to do with this podcast is offer variety and that may be in terms of the region in which crimes are covered i'm going to try to not cover the same state again and again and again uh, reach out and find true crime cases from states that i haven't covered yet countries i haven't covered yet each each time i do an international episode it's going to be a different part of the world until i start getting back to doing cases in the same area again somewhere down the road but I, I try to keep the show a variety of things and with true crime I just felt like obviously the, the most common version of true crime is uh, violence against women by a male perpetrator and so most of the cases are going to be that because that's just the reality of it but every once in a while I want to try to mix it up so it's not just non-stop male on female true crime violence and there will be a healthy dose of that on on this podcast but I, every once in a while I want to try to step out of that genre I guess of true crime and find another version of true crime that that just is a little bit different different look different different feel to it so but that's going to be it for this episode Thank you guys for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. You can also find me at True Blue Crime Productions on Facebook and support me via Patreon at True Blue Crime Productions. That's it for today. Thanks guys for listening. Have a great day. Goodbye.